Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. Raphael Imperiali is somebody who's, who's, who's not tried to keep a low profile and keep his head down. You know, he was living in a penthouse apartment on the Dubai Marina. He seems to have been importing suits. He was going around with three bodyguards at all times. You know, when he was asked, why do you need bodyguards? And he said, um, I use them to protect other people from me in case I get angry. There's a certain amount of uh, narcissism with the people that rise to the absolute top of these criminal organisations and often that can sometimes end up being their ultimate downfall. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Considered one of Italy's most dangerous fugitives, suspected of being a boss of the Camorra Mafia, and the one-time owner of two stolen Van Gogh masterpieces, Raphael Imperiale is now counting the costs of his life of crime. Arrested earlier this month in Dubai, he's now facing hefty charges back in Italy and a lengthy prison sentence for his role at the very top of organised crime. But Imperiale is no ordinary Italian mafia don. Documents from the DEA suggest that he was part of a European cocaine supercartel with the Kinahan Mafia, amongst other groups. Today, I'm talking to the Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about what his capture means for the takedown of the European narcos and how it leaves Daniel Kinahan, one of the last men standing in Dubai. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. His name, Raphael Imperiale, would suggest a really attractive looking Italian. And I'm sorry to start at such a low point in this story, but um, he just looks kind of squat to me. I was disappointed with him, Niall. Well, I I, I, I suppose that's each to his own. Um, But even if he doesn't look the part fully, as as you suggest, uh, Raphael Imperiale certainly is, is the real deal. Um, he certainly is a classic uh, mafia mobster figure. And even if he doesn't look great, apparently he spent a fortune on suits. Even in Dubai, he was importing them from Naples. Well, that, that would, have, would have helped matters. Right, so on to more serious parts of this story. Raphael Imperiale was nabbed on August the 4th um, in Dubai, where he had been living and hiding out as a fugitive, essentially, since 2016. Um, wanted in Italy on organised crime offences and also um, when his property, a farmhouse, was searched out there around that time, two stolen Van Gogh masterpieces were found hidden behind the bathroom wall. I mean, an extraordinary story and of course we should say from the offset that Raphael Imperiale was named by the DEA in the US as being a business partner of Daniel Kinahan, one member of the so-called super cartel, which we have been speaking about quite a bit on the podcast and which also included uh, the infamous Ridwan Taji and uh, Richard Elrico Vega, 
um, who is jailed at the moment in, in the Netherlands. So going back to Raphael Imperiale, who is he and how does he get involved with Kinahan and Co? Um, well, Raphael Imperiali was actually uh, born in quite a middle class um, circumstances in Naples. His father was a well-known builder. Um, he seems to have been born into considerable wealth, unlike some of the people that, that end up in organised crime. Um, however, he's he he was involved as a young man with Camorra groups, the Camorra obviously are one of the one of the main mafia organisations in Italy. By some accounts, probably the most dominant force in in Italian organised crime now, having taken over from the Sicilian mafia. Mafia, but Raffaele Imperiali seems to have really come into his own um, <clears throat> after he ended up in uh, Holland in the nineteen nineties. Um, he took over a, a, a coffee shop from his brother known as Rockland in the centre of, of Amsterdam. And he also ran an Italian restaurant, which apparently got great reviews and was very highly regarded. But really, at that point in the 1990s, he seems to have been acting as a broker for the, the Camorra gangs. Um, he seems to have been their man in Amsterdam, as people say. And he was particularly involved in in dealing ecstasy, acting as a broker uh, for and eventually for cocaine. And while he was there, obviously the, these Morocco, Morocco mafia gangs seem to have been based in and around. And of course, Christy Keenan Sr. was living in Amsterdam at the time. And that's where the connection began. It's very interesting because if you look at Amsterdam around that time, you can see all the major crime groups in the world set up sort of a headquarters. They send their men in so as they can do their dealings on the ground. It's the European headquarters of organised crime. It's where they make their deals. They use the ports of um, the Netherlands and also Belgium to bring the the product in. But you had around that sort of early 1990s and, and through to the late 1990s, you had people like Curtis Warren from Liverpool. You had the Colombian cartels, you had the Peruvians, you had the Turkish who controlled the heroin, all moving in there and basing themselves in Amsterdam. And, you know, from a policing point of view, you'd wonder, was that the liberal attitude that the Netherlands have to certain things? Or was it just in the same way as Spain that one draws another? So if you have, um, you know, a lot of people in your business in a certain area, you will move in. Well, I think it was probably a combination of things like all of these things. I mean, there's no doubt that Europe went through a, a drugs boom in the, in, the, in the very early 90s as ecstasy and all other drugs followed then. They took a huge grip around Europe. Um, also, Amsterdam has traditionally been one of the major importing ports in Europe. So there, there's a huge amount of traffic coming in. It's, you know, it's easier to get things in. There's an infrastructure there. And of course, there was a criminal infrastructure in, in, in Holland for these people to come in. But there's definitely a new breed came in the 1990s and uh, just just got in on the, the right end of the boom and Raphael Imperiali was, was certainly one of them. And funny, ecstasy seems to be something that when that culture started, the, you know, e-taking and the, the raves and all that, it sort of opened up drug taking to people who probably would never have previously seen it as an occupation or something that they could do. It was more respectable looking than heroin. You know, there was certainly a middle class came in and started taking drugs and it became a recreational thing to do. And I think that probably 
opened the floodgates for cocaine. Um, you know, it's a very significant time, isn't it, in both the demand and the supply of drugs. Absolutely. I mean, there was, it was, you know, it, it kind of normalised drug culture, you know, beyond beyond the, the smaller enclaves that had existed before. Um, certainly, you know, uh, it, it normalised, you know, maybe cannabis was a normal thing for people in, in the, you know, across Irish society at some point, but it certainly normalised harder, harder drugs. And it also introduced people into you know, a young generation into a degree of drug dealing where and where who made huge huge amounts of money. Uh, uh, you know, even on a small scale in, within their countries. Do we know much about Imperiali's life in the Netherlands throughout the early part of the turn of the century, say from two thousand to two thousand and ten, a boom time for cocaine, um, and a time where the gangs of Europe are starting to come together and realising that together they're a more powerful force and their their money goes further? Well, he um, certainly spent a lot of the time in Amsterdam, but like the Kinahan gang, like the Morocco Mafia, he migrated to Spain at some point as well or moved between Amsterdam and Spain. Um, so he, he, in fact, he, and he was also involved in a feud within the Cabora, a very violent feud, which is linked to about 100 murders. He was part of a, what's called the successionists. I, uh, I pronounce it in Italian, if, but I won't, uh, I won't even try it. But basically, they, you know, they, he, he was part of a, a separate group within the Camorra that fought a feud. And in fact, as the 2000s went on, he was, they, that gang became known as the Spaniards. They were nicknamed the Spaniards because they had a lot of strength in Spain. And he built up a huge amount of property in Spain. So Rafael Imperiali seems to be, you know, as, as, as the 2000s go on, he moves away from ecstasy and, and maybe solely being a broker for the, the Camorra gangs, but he seems to have become a European-wide broker based in Spain. Um, he seems to have built up a huge amount of properties uh, in Spain, some of which have been subsequently seized. And, um, you know, like it's the same trail, you know, Amsterdam, Spain, Dubai. Sometime, although it's 2016, people seem to refer to it, but, you know, other, other reports seem to say that he migrated even before that um, over to Dubai. And uh, just seems to have amassed a huge amount of wealth. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of drug seizures that are linked to him in in the Italian media. Um, you know that that you know that the Italians are obviously investigating. One of them is one thousand three hundred thirty kilos of cocaine seized in Paris in two thousand and thirteen, and that seems to be directly linked to Imperiale and is going to form part of the. Uh, the investigation into him. So that shows probably the scale at which he's operating, the way in which he's operating. He's not solely dealing with his home, his home gangs, but he's moved into this sort of becoming a, a, an international broker where he's, he's becoming the focus for, for distributing cocaine around Europe. So we have, <clears throat> we suspect he had links with Christy Kinahan originally in the late 90s, early 2000s in Amsterdam and onwards to Spain where we know there was a very significant period of um, of unity between the gangs that kind of starts, I think, from what I can make out around the 2012 mark. Between 2012 and 2015 seems to be an extremely significant time period for the getting together of resources. What we do know is that the DEA have identified this super cartel and we also know that the 
development of that was actually the brainchild of Daniel Kinahan. It wasn't exactly um, rocket science. It was a suggestion that the groupings come together, bring their finances together to buy bigger mother loads to bring them into Europe. And in doing so, they could undercut rivals and take over more and more of the cocaine market. The DEA documents, which we um, have got sight of because they were were used in, in the Netherlands in, in a court case, they suggest that this super cartel eventually owned, they had a monopoly over the Peruvian um, cocaine market. Uh, in other words, they were buying the supplies from Peru and that they had ownership of a third of the cocaine coming into Europe, which just runs into the billions. I mean, I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but from a year-to-year basis. So between 2012 and 2015, at which time the original Kinahan mob, which was made up of just Dublin, emerging of Dublin gangs, that starts to fall apart. Whereas the international partnerships between Kinahan and others strengthens. And in a way you wonder, does that whole feud that started between Daniel Kinahan and Gary Hutch come from a place that we in normal society can understand. It's just when one person becomes bigger than another and they, you know, they have to leave them behind. Um, I've often wondered, is is that really at the heart of everything? Um, obviously, there's money and rivalries and all the rest of it. But, you know, when Daniel Kinahan made these connections, these are mega big mafias, um, not only the, the Camorra, not only the Dutch Moroccans, but also was Eden Gassanen, the leader of a Bosnian mafia. Do we know where he is or what, what's happening with him? Well, he's he's meant to be in uh, Dubai as well. And he obviously, a lot of these connections, you know, people hear about them. They're, you know, Daniel Keenan is you know, hanging around with a guy from the Camorra and you hear all these things over the years and you don't know how true they are. But it really became crystallised when this, the DEA obviously... Uh, had a surveillance team on on Daniel Keenan's wedding, and at that point, you know, this is, seems to be obviously a man is getting married, but it also seems a kind of a crime. All uh, a summit of of criminals, um, also attending, and amongst them are, are Radovantaji, um, El Rico, as we spoke about Richard Richard Vega, but also um, Edin. Gassadin was also at the at the at the wedding. He's the head of the Tito and Dino cartel. They're a Bosnian gang, but they operate across Eastern Europe, across Northern Europe as well, to countries like Germany and, and some of the Scandinavian countries. But they seem to be he seems to be primarily in charge of like a lot of, of in charge of logistics of actually moving the stuff. So he remains in, in Dubai, uh, by all accounts. Um and obviously Daniel Keenan remains in Dubai, but the other two uh, heads of that organisation, Rafael Imperiale and Radovan Taji and uh, Richard El, El Rico are, are now... Uh, in custody. I mean, yes. Kinahan and Gassanen are the two last men standing and no doubt they're feeling that the, the march of law is heading for them uh, anytime soon. I personally don't see... Kinahan still being in the position he's currently in by next year. I think, um, you know, I think that uh, he is being circled and I'd say he must be feeling very, very vulnerable out there. Um, 
Just going back to Raphael Imperiale, he may not have the looks, but he certainly knew how to spend his money. Isn't that right? We have a little bit of information about how he was living in Dubai and a ladies' man. Well, a ladies' man by all accounts. Um, Like, uh, Imperiale doesn't seem to have been one of these uh, organised crime figures who, you know, hates the limelight and, and, you know, uh, will do anything to avoid it. like he he has done interviews from in from with Italian newspapers from from Dubai, um, you know he was living in a penthouse apartment on the Dubai Marina in a in a building called La Rev. He had in a penthouse apartment. He seems to have been importing suits, and he was going around with three bodyguards at all times, and uh, seems to have told the Italian media. You know, when he was asked, why do you need bodyguards? Because, you know, it's obviously there's very little danger in Dubai of that type. And he said, um, I use them to protect other people from me in case I get angry. And he was going to all, you know, there's reports of him buying 30 bottles of champagne wherever he landed in nightclubs. And he was driving around in these uh, extremely customised cars and, you know, so he was certainly not living a low-profile uh, life. Of course, as well, like in, in, in a classic case, he seems to have been involved in a couple of charities, supporting uh, single mothers in South America, of all places. Um, so he, he wasn't a low-key sort of guy. But, you know, I mean, interestingly, um, he seems to have written to the um, Italian prosecutors at some time in 2016. And, you know, you know, as part of as part of a case against them, and at that point they took. If you just look at the the scale of the wealth that he had, this is what has been taken from him already, which is amounts to something uh, approximately you know twenty million. And um, they took thirteen villas in in Italy. They took ten luxury cars, um, and he. Uh, Obviously, when, when the cars are surrendered, he seems to have written to them and instead of, uh, obviously they were taken from him, but he has written and said, I'm donating these cars to help in the fight against organised crime. So Raphael Imperiali is not, uh, is, is somebody who's, who's, who's not trying to keep a low profile and keep his head down. Far from it. Now, I did um, read in a, an, an, art, an art journal, a fine art collector's journal, that he actually confessed to having the two Van Gogh paintings around 2016. Now, criminals use art, stolen artwork as collateral. They always have. While the art may not be, okay, it's worth a lot of money, but you can't just go out in the open market and sell it because it's stolen. Um, And they're so significant, these paintings, that you couldn't, you know, just put it up for auction. Nobody would notice it. He had these two Van Gogh paintings. They had been stolen from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam in 2002. Both um, significant pieces by the Dutch master. One is called View of the Sea at Schengenen and the other is Congregation Leaving the Reformed Church in Neuven. From the 1800s, the late 1800s, both were painted. Um, When they were discovered, they were wrapped in sheets of, you know, bedsheets and stashed behind a wall in his bathroom. They were kept well, but nonetheless, they were there. Now, he has claimed that he bought those paintings off the thief because he, I quote, I love art. Um, he's actually given an interview to the Naples Daily newspaper Il Mattino, where he has said that, um, 
you know, he's always had an appreciation for the fine things in life and especially art. And he bought these because he wanted to admire them and had nothing to do with the theft whatsoever. It looks as if the Italians are going to use the discovery of those Van Gogh paintings and the theft as part of their case against him and probably part of some sort of a a money laundering or, you know, criminal assets type of a case. Yeah, it seems to be a broad case of of, um, drug trafficking and money laundering offences. Like he's obviously, um, and obviously the Van Gogh is kind of the, the thing that that really caught the attention of the Ital- of the international media, um, and he's obviously denied that that he he um, he stole them directly. He seems seems to have claimed he met somebody in his coffee shop and almost as a, a charity act uh, kept them off the uh, the international market um, and paid five million for them. Um, but yeah, the the. the the, the Van Gogh and all, all of these things, um, money laundering is a huge part of of, of the, the criminal case against them in that, you know, he's amassed, how he amassed all this wealth. There's no doubt that his fingerprints aren't going to be found in any drug shipment. But money laundering seems to be just like El, El Rico and, to you know, who, who ultimately was, you know, money laundering was a huge part of the case against him as well. This is how the authorities are managing to nail these very, very high level criminals. When it comes to these guys we're talking about who are literally at the highest uh, step in the ladder of organised crime, the likes of Raffaele Imperiale, the likes of Ridwan Taji, very dangerous individuals, but he's also a colourful individual, a colourful character. I mean, you know, he's he's uh, he's going to give up a lot of stories, I think, in, in the coming months as he presumably will fight his extradition back to Italy. For a guy like that, living the way he has been and believing in his own importance. I mean, I think there was a headline on the SundayWorld.com website there the other day that he lived like a sheik um, in the United Arab Emirates. But for a guy like that to be locked up in a cell um, and facing home to a very lengthy sentence in Italy where I don't believe the the prison system is is too uh, easygoing. Um, it's a huge come down. It's just such a huge fall. It seems the higher they go, the longer the fall from grace, you know. And um, I think we'll, uh, we'll maybe see more going down the same path over the coming months. I think so. I think there's a certain amount of uh, narcissism with the people that rise to the absolute top of these criminal organisations. And often that uh, need to, that narcissistic need to control and be in charge of everything that can sometimes ends up being their ultimate downfall. Well, look, we will forgive him for his uh, his height and um, we will come back to him, uh, this case, over the next few weeks and we see if the uh, the Italians succeed in extraditing him back to, uh, to Naples. For the moment, Niall Donald, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. Sundayworld.com. This is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent.
Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com.